0: what is up everybody welcome back to another episode of the rewired soul podcast and today i have the pleasure of speaking with jill filipovich all right her book her latest book is okay boomer let's talk. And this is not her first book. Her previous book the H-spot was about feminism and happiness and I actually just finished that so hopefully I can have her back on to chat about that. But anyways, let me give you some some background as to why I wanted to read this book and check it out, right? So last year I really got into the entire topic of like wealth inequality. But anyways, on a more personal note, I'm a millennial, right? I'm 36 years old. And my entire life, my entire life, I felt like this massive screw up, like growing up, you know, all the adults I knew, they, they owned houses, they had cars, they went to college, they had degrees, all these things, right? And as I became an adult, when I graduated high school and got into college and started working full time and everything like that, like, I felt like just such a massive screw up, right? Why, why couldn't I f- afford a house? Why could I not get a car? Like, why, why was I so afraid to go to college and rack up all this student debt? Like, how was I going to pay that off when I could barely afford, you know, uh, to, to, you know, rent an apartment? You know what I mean? Like, and I'm just like, I am doing this, this all wrong, you know, and. It wasn't until, you know, about a year or so ago when I started to realize that things have changed, right? Like things have changed and boomers had things much different than we do. And the, the narrative that we hear is, you know, millennials, you're entitled, you don't work hard enough and all that. But most of us know that that's not the case. Like a lot of you who know me and follow me, you know, I work insanely hard. I work a ton right so something something's not adding up where you know we don't we're, we're not working hard enough to have these things in the same adva- advantages so anyways when i came across Jill's book okay boomer let's talk i read it and i'm like oh my god right and jill lays it out jill lays out how the boomers had it compared to what we did. And it's not just like, oh, things are a little bit more expensive and all that. The government was helping in a lot of different ways in so many different ways. And Jill makes an excellent analogy and we touch on it in this conversation about how boomers were given a ladder. And then when they grew up, they pulled that ladder up behind them. And I'm like, ah, right. So anyways, it was very like therapeutic for me to read her book. And Jill is a super, super busy woman. She, she is, she is one of the hardest workers I know and like her work, it it inspires me and motivates me to write more and do more and talk more. But she talks about so many great important topics from wealth inequality to feminism to just so many other social issues. I love it. So anyways, make sure down in the description below, make sure you are following Jill over on Twitter, grab a copy of her book, Okay, Boomer, let's talk. I'm also going to link her other book, uh, H-Spot. And uh, Jill also has a Substack, and I love it. She talks a lot about uh, different, uh, you know, issues around, you know, feminism and just, you know, things going on in the world too. So anyways, I'll link all that down uh, in the description below. And while you're down there, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter as well at The Rewired Soul so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. I'm always chatting with all of you. I love having conversations with each and every one of you and hearing your thoughts and ideas but i'm also letting you know like what books i'm currently reading upcoming guests and all that stuff so make sure you're following me on instagram and twitter at the rewired soul all right but anyways without further ado here's my conversation with the wonderful jill filipovich All right. Hello, Jill. How are you doing today?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: I am fantastic and so glad we were finally able to link up. And today we're going to be talking about your newer book because this is your second book, if I'm correct. So this this one is OK, Boomer. Let's talk. So first thing I always ask is what inspired you to sit down and write this book? Because books take so much work, so you have to like really be motivated and passionate to sit down and write it. So what was going on where you're like, this needs to be written?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it was, you know, it was a confluence of uh, many things. Um, I think looking around at my own life and the lives of my friends and peers, you know, it was increasingly obvious to me as all of us pushed into our kind of mid and then late thirties how different our lives were than the lives of our parents, Mm -hmm. you know, in some ways, really positively, right? We have had many more opportunities for education and travel. And, you know, many more of us live in big, dynamic, expensive cities. We get married later. We have kids later. um, If we do those things at all. But in many other ways, it kind of felt like our lives were almost delaying the full entrance into adulthood Mm
0: -hmm. because
1: of the financial position that so many of us were in. Um, so when the okay boomer meme was like such a hit, yeah. uh, you know, whenever that was a year and a half ago, um, that, you know, along with my editor and agent, kind of spawned an idea of, you know, why not write a book about why it is that everyone is pissed off at baby boomers and millennials, especially, you know, what yeah. led to this generational divide? Um, and I wanted to come at it more from the view of how can we better understand each other and how can mm-hmm. we sort of paint the whole picture of how millennials got to the place they got to um, coming from a place of kind of connection and understanding rather than just being totally pissed off at boomers. Yeah. Uh, That was the genesis of the book.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's weird because I, I I don't know what it was last year, you know, just even, you know, from the Black Lives Matter stuff, I think leading up to the election, I personally just really got into like the economic topics of what's going on. So I'm like 36. Right. And just me, for example, growing up there's this narrative that, you know, work hard in school, go to college, you get an awesome job, you could buy a house and have a car and stuff like that. And mine, okay, so granted, I was a drug addict until I was 27 years old. So I had a little bit of a delayed start, Jill. But I but even like you said, like, I was looking at my friends and all these other things. And I'm like, I thought we were all supposed to have like houses and like cars and great paint. And it just wasn't happening. But during the okay boomer meme kind of pop off you see all these like debates I'm like you guys like the boomers talking down like you guys need to work harder and you guys need to do this and i don't know like you presented it very well like showing like hey here's here's what's going on here's kind of the assistance you guys got that you're not affording to us and one of the analogies i love that you use in the book i love if you can kind of like break it down a little bit is like they were kind of like given a ladder and then they pulled it up behind them. So can you kind of break down for those who are about to leave here and go buy your book if they haven't read it yet? Like, how did that happen? How were they set up for success? And then we were kind of left behind.
1: Yeah, I love that question. Because that is like the core argument of the book is that so much of what allowed boomers to move in, you know, to these middle-class lives, of course, not true of every baby boomer, but true of, of many of them, uh, was a tremendous investment in their generation when they were young. So, you know, whether that was uh, the GI Bill, which enabled a lot of their parents to buy their homes, if they were white at least, um, whether that was the network of highways and suburban developments that made single family living a possibility in the United States for a greater number of people and for middle class people. Um, There were tremendous investments in the public education system, uh, right? You know, to to help this generation go to college because there was a sense, you know, Cold War era, there was this sense that if we want to compete with the Soviets, Mm -hmm. you know, we need to invest in the information economy and we need people who are going to be scientists and, you know, have those higher level skills. And so the government invested quite a bit, both the federal and state governments, they created, student loan and grant programs to make all of that accessible. So Mm -hmm. there was huge investment in boomers. That investment was not shared equally, right? It was mostly into white boomer families um, or the white parents of the baby boomers and then white baby boomers themselves as they came of age. Um, But whites made up I think slightly more than 80% of baby boomers when they were coming of age. Mm-hmm. So boomers are just like a pretty white generation. Yeah. Um, so these resources were going, you know, to do a, a big chunk of the generation. What then happened when boomers came of age, they wound up electing Ronald Reagan. Uh, and that's where you really see this huge turn. You mm-hmm. see, for example, Europe go in one direction, which is greater social investment in things like, infrastructure, public transportation, healthcare, education, and you see in the US a real move away from those things. Mm -hmm. So you see us investing less in public education, you see us moving more toward a student loan model rather than a grant based model. Um, You see the price of education skyrocket. Uh, You see less investment in helping people own homes and move around. At the same time, you see great deference to big companies and corporations. And Mm -hmm. so you also see this concentration of jobs in big metropolitan city centers, um, which in turn incentivizes millennials to move to those cities. So by the time millennials come of age, we face a completely different set of economic realities than our parents. Mm -hmm. We are graduating from college with student loan debt. We're more likely to go to college than our boomer parents, but then we're we're already in debt by the time we enter adulthood. Many of us graduated into a recession. So Mm -hmm. we were economically hit right at the beginning of our careers. Um, The price of rent and the average price of a home in the U.S. have just about doubled from the time uh, boomers were young adults to the time millennials were young adults. Um, And that's uh, even with accounting for inflation, right? The real cost of a house um, and of rent is twice as much as it was. So you have millennials living in more expensive places, paying more for rent, who are already more in debt from school. Um, and then you wonder why it is we can't afford to buy a house or have mm-hmm. kids or do all of these things that boomers did. Um, you know the one stat that I think is probably the most telling is that when baby boomers, um, I believe when they were coming of, it's either when they were children or when they were coming of age, there was about a dollar spent uh, on entitlements, things like Social Security, mm-hmm. and Medicare for every $3 spent on future investments, Hmm. things like education and infrastructure. That is now flipped. So now there's $3 in entitlements, Social Security, Medicare, every dollar spent on future investment. And by the time baby boomers retire, that is gonna shift even more radically to $5 in entitlements for every dollar spent on investing in future generations. So, Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how you look at those numbers and say anything other than boomer politicians kind of set millennials up to not have the same resources that they did as children and, and as young adults, and that helped them to kind of climb the ladder. Um, you know, millennials are the first generation that are not going to do better than our parents. Yeah. Uh, and that I think are acutely aware that many of us are actually falling down the class rungs.
0: Yeah. And, and yeah, I have, I have so many, so many questions, like, and I'm curious your thoughts on it. Like, I guess one of the first things I want to ask you is, is how much with with this whole kind of thing, like, like, I, I like, I'm just always fascinated with human behavior and like self deception and stuff like that. And it seems like, you know, there's a lot of like, no, if you guys just worked harder, if you guys just did this, and I'm curious your thoughts and like, how much does you know, privilege play into this, because uh, I think it was last year, I was looking at some study when I was talking about, you know, it was all the conversations around white privilege, but one of the theories they put forward was to acknowledge it would mean uh, a couple things, right? It might take it away, right? So if you did have these advantages and if you acknowledged it, now it might take away some of your benefits, but also there's this idea like, wh- which, which of us wants to say like, hey, I'm not where I am because I worked hard, I'm here because I had some help, right? So there's two things. So I'm curious your thoughts around that, your research, your conversations with, you know, even the boomer generation, like, do you see this kind of like self-deception? Like, they don't want to admit it, they don't want to see it, they don't want to like, be like, yeah, you know, college was only like this much when I was your age and my house was only this much and the wages and the gas and, you know, all these expenses, like that dissonance that comes up. I'm curious your thoughts around yeah.
1: that no that's definitely right and i do think a lot of boomers do consider themselves self-made because Mm. so much of what was happening was invisible right and i don't think it's as much intentional self-deception as the path was just cleared for them you know yeah Um, so I, i do think a lot of the benefits that boomers saw they did not clock as benefits Coming from government, coming from some outside source. It was just the way life was. Um, And so I do think that makes it harder for them to sympathize with the millennial struggle. Um, You know, I think one really important story about these generation gaps is that part of what fuels the fact that millennials as a generation are poorer and more likely to be struggling than boomers were when they were our age is that millennials are a more racially diverse generation. Mm. And so part of this is that our whole generation has experienced some economic hits. And part of it is that our generation is more likely to be black and brown um, or more likely to be immigrants, for example, than boomers were. And when you have many, many, many decades, centuries of racial discrimination in the U.S that sort of unjustly lets white folks accrue resources Mm -hmm. and unjustly strips resources from black and brown folks, what you wind up with is then when you allow those resources to build over generations, you get a smaller concentration, large concentration of resources into a smaller number of hands. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing over the generations is that income inequality Paired with racial inequality means that millennials are a generation where a small number of us, most of whom are white, have a ton of resources and a ton of opportunities. And a much, 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 much larger number of us Mm. who are more likely to be black and brown have far fewer resources and far fewer opportunities. And this might only be exacerbated as our parents die and leave inheritances, right? Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, there's a sort of coming inheritance gap as the boomer generation passes on and will engage in what will be the single biggest wealth transfer in American history. Yeah. Um, so I think we're, you know, we're only looking at inequality being further exacerbated here. But part of the story of why millennials kind of on average as a generation are so, are so bad off um, is that we live in a country that you know, has never afforded black and brown people equal opportunity, equal mm-hmm. resources, has never compensated folks for the resources that were taken. Um, and so as a result, we are a poorer generation because we're a more diverse one.
0: Yeah, and and I, you know what? You're the perfect person to ask this uh, because sometimes I feel crazy. When it comes to generation generational wealth, do you do you feel like a lot of people just don't even understand that concept and and how that works from like family to family, like especially like talking about you know uh, just not not only like class divides but racial divides, and they're like, oh well, you know, like I'm I'm not I'm not racist, I didn't segregate or anything, and we're like, hey, you know, because I'm I'm half black, like my dad. My dad grew up, during, like he graduated in 69, right? My mom, she was beat up for dating black guys in high school. Like that's how close this was behind. But like, do you feel like people don't understand how like a family that had a leg up even a hundred years ago that inheritance goes down to those people who can then afford college and then maybe, you know they get to move into a house where that's an investment in and of itself. Like, like I don't, I don't know. It feels like not many people either do you think they don't know about it or they don't want to acknowledge it? What do you think that is?
1: <laughs> I think it's both, right? <laughs> um, you know, I do think in the US, we have such a mythology around pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and hard work. And, you know, and I, the truth is that many people that wind up highly successful do also work hard, right? And so it's easy to tell mm. yourself, I got here because I worked hard. Then I think also becomes too easy to tell yourself, well, if other people didn't get here, it's because they didn't work as hard, right? Um, And it's kind of like, well, trade places with a single mom for a couple of days and see who you think works hard. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I I look at my own family, you know, most of my grandparents are immigrants. um, But my one grandmother uh, whose family goes back way, way, way long back, you know, her and my grandfather managed to buy their house because of the GI Bill. Like they Mm -hmm. got a preferential mortgage and a fair rate on it. And they were able to buy a home in Chicago. And, you know, she went from growing up in rural West Virginia, you know, to parents without any education really at all to then that leg up in the middle class. Um, And she wound up being a single mother of five, right? Like she was still broke. She Mm -hmm. was working three jobs. Like things were really, really bad for her and really hard. Um, But they had that little, kind of nest egg to start before she got before they divorced. Um, and black families didn't have access to GI Bill benefits for the most yeah. part, right? Because a lot of those benefits only applied in certain neighborhoods and they weren't going to apply in redlined neighborhoods that were majority African American. So yeah. that that foothold on the middle class, a house, was mm-hmm. just off the table. You know, I have an interview in the book with um, a longtime family friend of ours, this guy, Jeff Robinson. And he talks about growing up um, in a black family uh, in Memphis, Tennessee and Mm -hmm. how they could not buy a house in a white neighborhood. They tried, they put down offers, they offered over asking and over and over refused, refused, refused. And it wasn't until a white friend of theirs bought their, like they gave her the money, she bought the house And then immediately sold it to them, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that was the only way his family could buy a house. Um, and that was their kind of launch pad in you know, his launch pad into the you know, middle class, upper middle class. And Mm -hmm. that's the that's such a story of so many families in America. Um Mm -hmm. and so I think you're right that yes, this history is there, more of us should know it. I think even many people who do know it don't fully understand, you know, the depth of inequality that we've created by holding entire, you know, sort of made up racial categories of people back.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's, it, it's, it's interesting. And, uh, you know, my, my son's 12, he just started seventh grade and stuff. And I try to keep this, this stuff in mind, just even looking at the difference between how I grew up compared to how he's growing up, right? Like, just, for example, um, he got an inheritance from uh, his great grandpa, who passed away, right? That is nothing that I had, like, when I was growing up, like, you know, we were, we were broke and worried about getting evicted and all this. And these are things that, I know he's not going to have to worry about it when college comes around because he has six more years until college. And, you know, we invested that money. So that money's going to grow. These are things that he's going to have a leg up on. And, and yeah, like, I I think it was humbling for me at some point when, when I got sober, like, right, because it's, it's kind of like the same idea of that generational wealth. And we want this idea, like I worked hard because thousands of people, like they just released the, the report of like, we had record numbers of overdose deaths, right? And when I got sober, I like to look at it and be like, I did this, I worked hard, da, 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 right? But I had so many advantages. For one, my mom got sober when, she was t- when I was 20. And she's a psychologist, and she's a clinical director at a rehab. So there's a little bit of a benefit I had getting sober, right? There's some people who get sober, and they're like living on the streets or crashing on couches. And my mom put me in a sober living house, like these are little, like those Tiny little advantages I had might have helped me tremendously. So that's kind of helped me step back and look at just you know uh, the wealth inequality situations and the general uh, the uh, eh, generational wealth and all that. But one one thing I, I wanted to jump into because there's a huge conversation around you know burnout and how much we have to work and that's something that you you discussed very well, right? Like. Back in the day, someone could work eight, 10 hours a day and pay for their house, provide for four kids, and you had stay, you know, you had stay-at-home moms, and you know, they could pay for everything. And now we're working like insane hours. But Jill, here's something else. See, Jill, we got a lot in common because I watch you and I've I've credited you this on Twitter. You work your butt off. All right. And I'm the type of person where like I go crazy if I'm not working too. So do you like? How do you, how do you kind of see that in this, in this larger scale problem? Because I don't know, like you might be wired differently. I might be wired differently where I don't get burnt out that much when like working all this much, but I I don't, I don't know. Like, do you think that we shouldn't have to, because I don't think you work as much as you do because you have to, you part of you might like it. Right. So where do we find that balance between wanting to work a ton and not needing to work a ton?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. Um, the working hours thing is really interesting because that is another like source of inequality within the millennial generation that Mm -hmm. white collar employees, folks that make a lot of money work many, many, many more hours than they did, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Um, whereas pink and blue collar employees, employees that are wage laborers typically work fewer hours, aren't working enough hours. Mm. Um, And part of the reason for that is that, you know, back in the day, hours were scheduled in advance and tended to be consistent, right? And now, again, we have given so much deference to big corporations um, that what happens is that workers have their hours set, you know, day to day or week to week, and they're incredibly inconsistent. Mm. And they're kept below, you know, a certain number of hours per week so that employers don't have to pay health insurance which means that if you're an hourly worker you're much more likely to be underemployed or cobbling together two or three or four different jobs right just mm-hmm. to make ends meet but never really knowing which hours of the week you're available it's completely crazy trying to put these puzzle pieces together yeah. which then to all these compounding um, effects on for example trying to find childcare right it's awfully hard mm-hmm. to find childcare if you can't tell your childcare provider what your hourly work schedule what your daily yeah. work schedule is so it's created this like complete instability for folks on the bottom rungs. Mm-hmm. Whereas folks on the top rungs, I, I think there's so much anxiety around falling out of the upper middle class or falling out of the middle class. There are many more demands on our time. You know, I think honestly COVID and kind of work from home has probably exacerbated a lot of this. Mm-hmm. There is a sense that you're never off the clock. Um, you know, and so I, I do think that some of it is a choice, but I think a lot of it is also an expectation. And a lot of it is a set of policy decisions. You know, the, yeah. we are the only developed country that doesn't have paid parental leave, paid maturity yeah. leave. Um, you know, we don't have paid sick days, which is a little bit crazy. We don't have yeah. paid vacation. Um, you know, all of that are things that we could change at a political level that would make people's lives saner. You know, we could mandate predictable hours, right? Mm-hmm. So that it's, Starbucks just has to say, okay, you're working from, you know, 9 to 4 p.m. or whatever, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, as opposed to like texting you Sunday night and telling you what your schedule is. So, you know, there are policy solutions here. Um, And I think, you know, you're right that millennials experience a tremendous amount of burnout and a tremendous amount of overwork, but we also experience a tremendous amount of kind of lack of consistent work on, Mm. on the lower levels. Um, and I think that is a, a related and, you know, just as important of a story.
0: Yeah. So let, let, just kind of personal question, like, do you, like, how do you, you manage it? Like, do you, do you feel like you get burnt out? Like the other day, like, I was like, holy crap. Like, I'm sure, you know, you didn't write them all in one day, but you had like three pieces, like go out, like, do you work because you want, do you, because you want to work, you feel like you have things to say that you want to cover, like you're very passionate and motivated. And that's one of the reasons I love your work. Right. But do you feel it's like, a, like for you, it's a have to, or want to, like, are you, how do you balance it? Like if anybody's listening out here or even me, cause I work a ton, I love working. Like, how do you kind of balance it and make sure that you don't just burn out?
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wish I had like, <laughs> good answer to that. I mean, I felt during the COVID year, I got extremely burned out as did a lot of people, you know, Mm. I think because all of the mechanisms I had put into place to make my life feel more balanced Mm. fell away. Right. Um, and so that was very challenging and and (laughs) very humbling. Um, yeah, I mean, I often, I I work, I, I love what I do. I get to write for a living. There's no better job in the world. Um, but I'm a freelancer and I work for myself. So that means there are no sick days. Um, there are no vacation days, you know, the, uh, when I say yes or say no to a piece, I have to think about, you know, what are the downstream professional implications of that? You know, I've answered emails on my honeymoon. I've edited columns on my wedding anniversary out to dinner. Like... There's no off switch, and that is pretty yeah. exhausting. I think one of the things I've tried to be better about is creating some more barriers and boundaries. Mm. Um, doesn't always work, but you know, part of the part of the nice thing about freelancing is it is feast or famine. And so, in the periods where I'm not busy, or I'm home in New York, you know, where the weather is bad, I try to shore up a bunch of work <laughs> and yeah. then spend you know, spend those days really grinding uh, so that, for example, now when it's August and it's beautiful and I'm on holiday, you know, I'm working a couple hours a day, but I'm not working like full time all day, every day. Um So trying yeah. to strike a balance that way. But that's also that's like a freelance life thing. I don't <laughs> It's probably not applicable yeah. to people in real jobs.
0: Yeah. So I, I personally get conflicted and it's it's like this idea of, you know, like, for example, just I, I love the fact that, you know, like with technology, like I, so I, I have a full-time day job, right. But on the side, you know, I could do these other projects and like, you're on, you're on Substack. I recently hopped on Substack. I have a YouTube channel. These other random sources of income, you know? So like on one hand, like that's awesome, right? Like, cause back in the day for the boomers, if they wanted a little extra money, like they had to go somewhere somewhere maybe do some manual labor. Like, you know, when we talk about like these single mothers, like some of them have to work multiple jobs at different shifts and stuff. So like I, on one side, like I, I get conflicted because I'm like, it's cool because people like you and I, we can do this. Like we could be talking literally anywhere, right? When I write or when, you know, I've made YouTube videos in other countries, other cities, all sorts of stuff. So so yeah, like, I guess my question to you is if, if you had a choice, right now, would you rather like a more stable, like if you had the option, like would you rather a boomer job, like back in the day, like nine to five, go into office, know when your days off are, or or is there a model that you've like, you have in your mind that would be most beneficial? I'm I'm curious.
1: Yeah, I mean, no, I would not trade my (laughs) flexibility for just about anything, but I do think where we could do a better job You know, it was, for example, not tying health insurance to employment, Mm. right? Um, I have health insurance through my husband because he has a, like, normal, steady job. Um, Before that, I paid out of pocket for it. You know, like, I had, like, some freelancers, what was probably pretty crappy health insurance. Um, And so I do think that's a huge barrier to people being able Mm. to, you know, be a little more creative in their professional lives. Um, I think with the sort of the rise of, you know, the... Uber and app economy and especially in big cities that there's now an entire class of workers who essentially cater to the wealthier professional class. <laughs> you know, that those yeah. folks are all working part-time and they're all contract employees. They're not considered real employees. They're not entitled to health insurance or to any benefits. You know, I, I do think we need to catch up and create a way where folks who don't work traditional jobs um, or who do have, you know, multiple kind of part-time contract gigs uh, can still be entitled to some of the same benefits that full-time boomer style employees did, yeah. health insurance, parental mm-hmm. leave, you know, paid sick days, that kind of stuff. Um, it doesn't seem like that is such a difficult problem to solve, especially as more and more workers in, in our generation you know, go into this kind of freelance contractor economy, mm-hmm. um, but it is one that, you know, that we really have not solved for and that I think is, especially as millennials get older, is, is kind of a coming crisis.
0: Yeah. No. That that's that's a great point too. Because uh, yeah, just two years ago, before I started this job, I was doing uh, YouTube full-time and yeah i I just didn't have health insurance and you know the irs came after me i had to pay some fees for that and stuff but i'm just like hopefully i don't get sick or injured or whatever but yeah that's something you know i i think about a lot and there's all the debates about you know medicare for all and all these other things and they're like oh who's gonna pay for it and then they start talking about socialism in venezuela even though like the nordic countries are doing it and nobody's like Eating each other or anything crazy like that, you know. So it it yeah, it's it's crazy that we're shifting more towards that, but not having access or affordable healthcare. If you're a freelancer, like I don't even want to know how much you were paying before you were on your your husband's <laughs> health insurance. Like my girlfriend, uh you know, we're not married, but she's currently in her master's program, and she's like just now getting access to some like college. Type healthcare, you know. Um, But if I could, because we don't have much more time, I wanna, I wanna kind of take the side of the boomers real quick and ask your thoughts on some stuff, right? So, you know, people our age—I think I'm a little bit older than you—but there's this huge thing. There's a lot of people in like they've surveyed kids and they want to be like influencers and all these other things, and it, it it does feel a little. Entitled at some point, right? Or it's like, oh, I want to, I want to move to LA and be a TikTok star or whatever. So, like, do you think that there's still some like, do you ever like look around at like, kind of like the millennial generation, say, you guys are making my job harder trying to argue for you because you do seem a little entitled, like you want to just go out, turn on your camera, and be a, a millionaire. Like, do you think there's there's some kind of compromise that needs to come between like millennials and boomers in that respect?
1: Yeah. I mean, of course, I think especially as, you know, Gen Zers are now culturally ascendant, the, the, the kids younger than us. Of course, I'm like the old person looks at them and thinks that they are doing it all wrong, right? So some aspect of this is just like as it ever was generational warfare. You yeah. know, Before, when boomers were young, they were, you know, talked about as though they were the most narcissistic, self-involved, self-indulgent generation of all time. And then so are Gen Xers, and then so are millennials, and now, now so are Gen Zers. Um, you know, and every generation of young people has also looked at the older generations and said, you guys are out of touch and uncool, and you just don't understand. So yeah, yeah I mean, of course, you know, I read the stories about TikTok houses and the surveys about how many Gen Zers just want to be famous, and I feel totally horrified and appalled. Um, but I do think part of that is just the reality of creeping toward <laughs> creeping toward middle age and getting crankier and crankier and that is what I try to remind myself is that I'm not yeah. sure that that the kids are actually doing it all wrong i think like every generation before them and after them they're going to get some stuff wrong and they're going to get a lot of stuff right
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 weird, too, because like, for example, like I live in Las Vegas, which is I don't know if it just it feels inexpensive because we're right next door to California, which is insanely expensive. But sometimes I'm looking at it or like, you know, I I read a lot of pieces and I, I look at these things, but sometimes I'm like, well, you know, like why live in Southern California, right? Like weather is amazing and everything, but that's kind of why the price is so jacked up or, you know, when they talk about like, you know, the coastal elites and all that kind of stuff. And and yeah, I, I've kind of had to learn and understand, like, it's not that simple to always just like pick up and move, but I don't know. Do you, do you think, hmm... And this, we might not even have enough time to break this down, but like, do you think people should be able to live like wherever they want or like, you know what I mean? Like, should, should I have the opportunity, right? Cause I would love to live in California. I think you said you're from Seattle. I think I read that somewhere. Like I would love to move up to the Pacific Northwest maybe when my son graduates and stuff like that. But like, should our system be set up in a way where I can do that without having to like really worry about it or should there i don't know what are your thoughts on like on that like should should everybody just have complete equality and be able to live wherever they want like should it all be affordable
1: i mean i I do think we are facing a major affordable housing crisis but i think Mm. we're also we're part of what's fueling that is the fact that jobs have radically urbanized over the last 25 years Mm. or so so jobs used to be much more, you know, it was never perfectly evenly distributed across the whole country, right? But you had many, many more centers of production, um, you know, which is why we are constantly hearing about these small towns that were, you know, factory towns that had one thing, right? They made socks or they made film for cameras or something. And that was the engine of the town. When I was growing up in Seattle, sort of pre-Microsoft anyway, that was Boeing. Mm. Um, that was just a huge employer. Um Many of those companies have now been sent overseas or have shut down for a variety of reasons. And so all of these sort of smaller cities um, or even like large towns, um, many of them no longer have any economic engine to allow people to stay where they grew up or stay close to where they grew up. So what you see millennials do is follow where the jobs are. Right. So that's why there are a ton of us in Los Angeles and in New York City and even in places like Austin, Texas, you know, and Seattle, right? When I grew up, Seattle was not like a booming <laughs> city. Yeah. Um, but uh, thanks to Microsoft and Amazon, you know, it, it, it's radically more expensive and um, they're having a major housing crisis because they won't build vertically. Um, so <laughs> part of it is, yes, people, millennials and millennials will say this in, in surveys. They want to live in places where there's public transportation. They want to live where there are good restaurants. Mm -hmm. They want to live where there's good nightlife and where there's culture. And part of that is, you know, we're staying single longer. We're having kids later. There's many, many, many more years where we're going out and doing all of that stuff before the kind of retreat that happens when you have children. Um, Mm. So that makes sense. And then you add that to the fact that you know, jobs now are so heavily concentrated in these places. Um, So you have the jobs both for the folks who are kind of college educated workers and also the entire class of jobs, you know, Uber drivers, um, you know, folks that deliver dinner (laughs) to office buildings, manicurists, you know, like a whole whole tier of jobs um, that kind of serves that professional class. Right. And those yeah. are the folks who really can't afford to live in these big, expensive cities. Um, so part of it, I do think, is personal choice and preference. But I think mm-hmm. a huge part of it is economic incentives and necessities. Um, and that's the piece that we could do a better job at solving.
0: Yeah. No, I, th- I think, yeah, you, you something just clicked for me while you were talking jill like that makes sense you know you got silicon valley you got seattle and stuff and and i guess one thing i'm hoping because i I try to pay attention to all the you know uh social psychology and you know the new like work from home or people doing school from home but like for a lot of these jobs and where the money is like you don't need to physically be there like for example my my day job like our our main office we had an office here in las vegas it was only two of us because we're a smaller company but uh the main office was in california and like since the pandemic we've all worked from home once it stopped like or once like things kind of chilled out and we could go back to the office like they just decided like hey you guys can just work from home and i'm saving money on gas and i could just do it here so i'm hoping that's something that comes out of the pandemic is that people they realize like hey you can make money you can live somewhere more affordable while getting a, a better job but but yeah i only got two last quick questions for you, Jill, and it's about the book and the impact it's made. So one one thing that I I love about the book, because most of my life, like I, I felt like I looking around, like, you know, I grew up and every adult I knew owned a house and they had a car and they had not only that, but they had plenty of free time and reading books like yours helped me realize like, oh, okay, I'm not terrible. I don't suck. I'm not doing everything wrong. Things are a little bit different, so I'm curious if you've gotten any of that kind of feedback from like younger people, from like millennials and stuff, where it was kind of eye-opening. Like, oh, oh, I am doing the best I can. The system's just a little bit different.
1: Yeah, definitely, and that's been really gratifying to hear. Um, yeah. I do think we're sort of at a, a cultural and generational moment. I mean, I think you and I are roughly the same age, and. I think a lot of folks in our generation are looking around and saying, like, I have been feeling like a screw up for the past 10 years because I'm not where my parents are. I'm not, you know, I haven't checked off this like list of like adulting things. Right. Um, And I do think a lot of us are now looking around and saying, like, well, why is it that my parents had access to all of this and I don't? Why is it that so many of my friends are also struggling? And so I do think there is a, a bit of a sort of shift in consciousness of understanding that it's not just all of our individual fault for being, you know, spoiled snowflakes or whatever, yeah. um, that many, a lot of the stuff is, is a political and, and policy choice. Um, and I have heard from some readers that this helps the book, help them connect those thoughts as well, which, which feels very nice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like, although I'm very passionate about this stuff and like, uh, you know, like making things more equal and everything, like, like, like I was just saying, like I beat myself up for not being where I should be and stuff. And, you know, quick fun story, my son's 12 and I had him sit down and he watched the college admission scandals, uh, documentary with us on Netflix. Right. And it's funny because it stuck with him, but like uh, I I read a lot of books on just the issue with like college admissions, and I had Dan Golden uh, on here a few weeks ago to talk about you know how privilege and wealth helps you get into college. But anyways, my worst fear is my son working his butt off his entire life and then not getting into a school and thinking it's his fault. And it's like no 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 no. That's actually my fault because I'm not a millionaire and I can't buy a building for that school you want to go to and you know what I mean so so yeah if nothing else that's why I hope people read books like this so they realize like hey there's some other things in it, it, it it's encouraged me to get more involved with like paying attention to politics and systems and seeing where these things are and if you know uh, if something's affecting me it's probably affecting other people or if something's affecting other people it might be affecting me too but but last question here is the main question all right? Has your book been a, a light bulb epiphany moment for any boomers? Have any boomers reached out to you and been like, oh my God, Jill, I have been just totally ignorant to all this. I didn't realize how many advantages we have. Has that happened yet?
1: So no one has said quite that. <laughs> <laughs> Not the exact quote. <laughs> but I have, I have heard from, from a lot of boomers. It's funny, a lot of them are, very resistant just given the title, which is understandable. Yeah, yeah. That Um, is an
0: aggressive title, but I like it. I like it. I think it works.
1: (laughs) I do too. Um, But yes, but I have heard from some boomers saying that it did help them to kind of think about these things differently and to just shed a light on some of the invisible um, advantages that they had and to help them understand, for example, why their millennial kids had struggled despite feeling like they as parents had invested a tremendous amount in their children. how the the landscape that that they walked through and that we are walking through now are, are two very different things
0: yeah no that's that's awesome and that's why everybody they they need to read the book and buy a copy for their their parents or grandparents or something like that so they they get it too but yeah jill thank you so much I'm glad we were able to do this we had to reschedule a little bit and like I know you are insanely busy so I really appreciate it but uh where can everybody find you and keep up with you because like I said you are writing for like 10 publications you have your like own Substack, and you have another book so like I want people to know where you're talking the most so people stay up to date and do you have any other books in mind coming up
1: no book coming out next. <laughs> That's project for the fall. Um, you can find me on Substack at jill.substack.com, just J-I-L-L. And I'm on Twitter at Jill filipovich, J-I-L-L-F-I-L-I-P-O-V-I-C. Um, and thank you so much for having me. It was such a fun conversation.
0: All right, everybody, there you have it. That was my conversation with the wonderful Jill Filipovich. And I, like I said in the intro, like I hope this episode did for you what it did for me, all right? I, I can quit beating myself up as much. And, and you know, as Jill and I spoke about, like, you know, there's, there's this uh, balance between working hard and doing everything you can while also realizing that, there needs to be some kind of policy changes, and some of that, you know, involves boomers understanding how things have changed and empathizing a little bit, uh, because right now many of the politicians who are making these decisions are boomers, and if you look, there's you know younger people coming up who are realizing these things and all that, but it's going to take time. But we need to address it on our level. So we can, you know, vote for the right people, pay attention to what's going on. But like I said, mostly, and and you know, it's something I think about with my son is we need to cut ourselves some slack and realize not everything is 1000% in our control and the way we compare ourselves to other people and other generations and all that. But anyways, Jill is fantastic. I love the book. Please, please, please grab yourself a copy. And I wasn't joking. Get a copy for your parents or your grandparents or whatever it is. Just, hey, Christmas is coming up in a few months. Just be like, here you go, here you go. And it's just so you guys can have a little conversation. All right, so check down in the description below. Make sure you are following Jill over on Twitter. Grab a copy of OK Boomer. And I have also linked her other book, H-Spot, down below so make sure you grab both of them and while you're down in the description make sure you're following me over on instagram and twitter at the rewired soul so you don't miss anything that's coming up any new episodes any books i'm reading i i talk about the upcoming guests so you get like a little sneak preview and all that stuff but most of all i just love talking and interacting with all of you all right but yeah, other than that, if you're new here and you haven't yet, make sure you're following or subscribed. Uh, if you're on Apple, leave a rating and leave a review. That would really mean a lot to me. And yeah, share this episode. Share this episode. If nothing else, let's say let's say you're not going to buy the book for your parents or grandparents, just share this episode with them. Right? They could sit down, take a listen, and be like, huh maybe some, there's some things going on. But anyways, when you, when you follow, subscribe, rate, review, share this out, it really helps the podcast out. It's a completely free way to support the podcast because it shows the algorithms, hey, people are interested in this, and it starts spreading it to some more people so we can build and grow this, this lovely community we have here. All right. But yeah, uh, if you would like to support the podcast in any way, there's a few links down below. Uh, I have self-published some books that are over at the rewired mainly about addiction, recovery, mental health, and all that. You can become a patron. And there's also an affiliate link down below for better health online therapy. uh, uh mental health is a huge, huge, huge part of my recovery of my life. I make it my top priority and better help is a service that I've personally used. So make sure uh, if you want to try out some therapy, check it out. It's affordable. You can do it from the comfort of your own home. You work with a licensed therapist. All right. But anyways, another huge, huge, thank you to Jill for taking some time out of her busy schedule to come on and chat about her book. Okay, boomer, let's talk. And for all of you, I hope you have a magnificent, rest of your day and I will see you tomorrow with another episode talking to another fantastic author.